0: Welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast, conversations
1: designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing is
2: Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn.
1: Hello, welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast. I'm your host, Davey, and joining me for this whole month, our guest co-host, Brittany Brooker. Brittany, so great to have you back on.
0: It's good to be here. Also, this month is Father's Day, so yes, happy it is. Father's Day early oh, to you, Davey. Thank
1: you so much. I appreciate and that.
0: As I was thinking about that, as we're going into this episode, I wanted to just ask you a couple questions about that because I know you're your really journey, taking this
1: co-hosting role seriously. Right yeah, now, aren't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Doing what I can, man. But. So in the midst of your journey in fatherhood, it yeah. has not been an easy ride. It has had so many ups and downs and yet hmm. you've remained faithful to the Lord in the midst of it and leaving, and that is your heart is leaving a legacy for your family. So tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about that.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I don't feel like that I'm knocking it out of the park as a dad. I think we I always feel like there's definitely room for improvement. But um, you know, I've had to walk through a season of being a single dad. And then, you know, also blending a family, which has a l- whole lot of complications, as you guys know, um, yep. in, in trying to father well. But you know what? You know what? Honestly, I have a fantastic dad, Brittany, like unbelievable dad. He listens to Amazing. every single episode. He has no idea that I'm about to say all the stuff that I'm about to say. Uh, so he's probably going to ask the
0: question then. I know. He's
1: probably <laughs> going to call me up and it's going to be some maybe cry fest. I'm starting to feel a little weepy right now just thinking about this. But Um, My dad is probably the most compassionate person you've ever met in your entire life, right? Like the whole, he'd give you the shirt off his back. My dad would give you his whole closet. Like he is unbelievable. He grew up a missionary's kid in a third world country in Haiti, you know? So it's like he just has this heart for Jesus, heart for people that oozes out of him. But the thing I love about my dad the most is no matter what, no matter how there's been other voices in my life, he's the one that's always been steady and constant and there. And I'll give you two examples. One was um, when I walked in to find uh, Amanda on our living room floor on November 10th um, mm-hmm. when, you know, everything had happened and the break-in took place. Immediately after I called 911, the the only thing that I could think to do was call my dad. While yeah. I was waiting there with Amanda, I called my dad. And I don't even know why I did other than the fact that there was something in me that said, if somebody can fix this, my dad can. Wow. And then it immediately dawned on me as I get him on the phone, wait, he can't. But then the the, the Heavenly Father showed me yeah. through that whole process that he can fix it, right? But there was a, something inside of me that said, my dad can because he's always been there for me in the worst of situations. Well, three months later, going back into my house for the first time to go and kind of face that, And confront that grief for the first time. My dad was the one that drove me to the house who waited outside for me as I walked in to go and just kind of say goodbye to my house and and process through that. And he's just always, he's always been just a steady for me. And so when I think about fatherhood and leaving a legacy of fatherhood, um, oftentimes I think, what would my dad do? Like, how would he respond in this situation? How would, how would he respond? So, okay, this is how I'm going to respond to my kids. So, Dad, if you're listening to this, I know you are. I love you. It would probably be really hard to tell you this like to your face because I would just be a weepy mess, but just want you to know I love you and, and I really appreciate you. Happy Father's Day.
0: Yep. I love that example in fatherhood. And I think the older I get, the more I see the importance of dads. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so sweet too that in scripture, God is called our heavenly father. And so even people that did not have earthly fathers like you had or I had, we have our heavenly father that is that protector. It is the one that we call to and the one that takes care of us. And for me, because I had three fatherless boys Mm -hmm. you know, and walking through that journey, we learned what God as Father really is in pointing our kids to God as Father and the ways that He takes care of us in so many ways that only He could know that we're walking through. And I'm just so thankful for the legacy that God gives us and the example He gives us in that that we can follow. So that's amazing. Well,
1: I think even for like men who maybe my challenge would be men, if you're not a father or if you are a father, like every man should be thinking, how can I be a father to, to like people, a yeah. younger generation? You know, how can I kind of take people, in a, especially those who are fatherless? Yes. Because you can be a part of the redemptive story that God is writing in that person's life yep. by being a father to the fatherless or playing that role to the fatherless, you know? Mm-hmm. And so just kind of open your eyes this Father's Day. I would challenge you, like, yep. who is someone in your life that you know Uh, doesn't have a good example as an earthly dad or or doesn't have an earthly dad. And you can start to build a legacy in that person of good fatherhood that ultimately points people to uh, our perfect heavenly father.
0: Absolutely. Well, I love that. So we always encourage you guys to rate and review us on iTunes. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to read a really precious review um, that we got recently from a listener. And I know, Davy, you haven't heard this one yet. Um, But it said, I'm not sure how I came across this podcast, but it's nothing short of amazing. I love how Davey is not afraid to interview guests who have gone through deep and heavy issues. I also love how empathetic and graceful he is to all of his guests while allowing them to tell their story. I really don't follow the Lord anymore, but I find a lot of hope through these stories. Wow. Wow. Yes. Yes. And that right. is the heart behind Nothing Wasted yeah, is that's right. exactly that. And you live it out. And we're um, just so thankful to have a space that makes people feel safe, that their wow. pain has a purpose, and they right. can be very real about it.
1: Yeah. And ultimately, you know, it's bringing people into a relationship with Jesus. You know, yes. Um, I mean, my heart hurts to hear this person say they're not following the Lord. Um, oftentimes that happens because there's been some kind of pain or hurt
2: mm-hmm.
1: that sometimes hasn't been inflicted by those who follow the Lord or yep. claim that they do. And so I just want to say, I'm so sorry if that is the case. I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily presupposing that that is, but if it is, I want to say, I'm sorry. And our heart behind this is to point people to Jesus, that he is a restorer of broken things, that he fills us when we're empty, that he... um Ultimately, he brings redemption and restoration mm-hmm. to all the, you know, broken parts of our life, and so that's our heart behind all of this. Thank you so much for reading that review. I mean, yes. that Brittany, that that was touching. It really was.
0: I mm. love hearing how um, your ministry is impacting lives, and you and Christy saying yes to sharing, like you just talked about the hard places and the broken mm. places of our lives, that honestly show us that. Our life may be broken, but what we want to point to is the hands that are holding us up. And so I feel like that's what y'all's lives are. And it gives people a place where they feel safe um, to really know Jesus as hope and know that Mm. we're all broken and in need of the Lord and He is our hope.
1: That's right. Wow. Well, Brittany, you know where people can find more of that hope is going to Instagram, following us. Nothing is Wasted Ministries. We would love to interact with you there. So, um, you know. Let us know that you're hanging out with us there. Let us know that you're listening to the podcast. Tag us on that. We've got all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff that happens. And uh, we're ramping stuff up right now. We've done some takeovers, which has been fun. Some of our nice. community group guides are taking over the Instagram for a little bit, sharing their thoughts. So it's really, really fun. You definitely need to interact with us at Nothing Is Waste of Ministries over there.
0: That's great. So today we have an interview with Dr. Lee Warren, who is the author of I Seen the End of You. He's a neurosurgeon with an incredible story of faith. Let's check it out.
1: dr. Lee Warren, great to have you on the podcast with me. Thanks for joining with me great hey, Davey.
2: thanks for uh, having me it 's great to be with you
1: Of course, you just released this book and um, i i don't know if things are going to slow down for you this thing's amazing. The message that you 're bringing forward is incredible um, but what i 'd love to before we dive into kind of the the message that you are um, uh, that you're asserting in this book i'd love to hear just a little bit about you uh, hear about your family cont- your
2: your present day context. Just tell us a little bit about. Dr. Lee Warren. Sure. Well, I live in Casper, Wyoming. Um, my wife, Lisa, and I moved here from Auburn, Alabama in 2015. No, wait, hold on a second. Please tell me you're not
1: flying War Eagle. Oh, I'm War Eagle, oh, baby. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> you're
1: just there. Are you not a Bama no, fan? Lee, I grew up in Birmingham and, oh, and then graduated from Tuscaloosa County High School. So I'm a major Bama fan. Well, you know, we all have kingdom gifts
2: and human weaknesses, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this. This is great, man. Now, we <laughs> actually were just in uh, we were just in Auburn last weekend because our youngest daughter, Kaylin, graduated from the university. Wow. Uh, so we're done putting kids through college after 13 years.
1: So wow, that's awesome. How do you guys get from Auburn out to Wyoming? Maybe that's part of telling us your context a little bit.
2: You know, actually it, it kind of part of their story, really. Um, you know, our um we had a solo practice there. Lisa and I uh, got married in 2006 and blended our families and then um, started a solo practice in Alabama. Uh, and I was the only neurosurgeon there and she ran our practice. And so we were um, really overworked and, and serving a community of a hundred thousand or so people as the only surgeon there mm-hmm. uh, doing that thing. And so it became kind of, kind of an overwhelming part of our life. Um, and then after, um, Mitch died, our son, which I'm sure we'll talk about later in 2013. Um, our daughter Kaylin, at the time was a junior about to be a junior in high school and we finished her high school career out and, um, we were going to be empty nesters and she stayed there at Auburn and it just became, um, well, let me back up one step. 2010, when the Affordable Care Act slash Obamacare went through, the cost of being in solo practice medicine went up, uh, mm. almost doubled overnight. And so if you're in solo practice, all of that overhead was on us to generate. So it got super expensive. And then at the same time, um, it being there... Um, without Mitch kind of became hard and yeah. we kind of needed to change the scenery. Um, and then at the, by about 2015, the the writing was on the wall that solo practice was just too expensive. I could, I could work harder and make mm-hmm. more and keep the overhead, um, under control, but we, but it was, it was a zero sum game. At yeah. some point we were going to have to hire another surgeon, which there wasn't enough people in town to do right. uh, or go somewhere else. So, we started looking out west because we'd always liked to travel out there and, and um, very quickly found uh, Wyoming as a great opportunity to become an employed physician and not have to run our own practice. And it's mm. been really one of the best things we've ever done.
1: Wow. Well, you mentioned, you know, already alluded to this tragedy that your family has experienced um, in losing your son, Mitch. And, uh, I'd love for you just to kind of take us back and, and tell us the, the, the narrative, the chronology of it and and how this came about, because there's so much of what you experienced that illuminated some ideas to you that now you've put, you've put in this book. Um, so
2: talk to me a little bit about that, that tragedy you guys have walked through. Well, so the hardest part about what happened with Mitch is that we don't know what happened. Um, the answer that the police gave us is really an answer that doesn't make any sense to us. So we had, um, you know, we had a a son, uh, he was 19 and he'd like a lot of teenage kids had been through some rough adolescent years. And we had, you know, kind of had some strain in our relationship. He'd made some bad decisions. And, um, and we spent about a year, sort of being a little bit estranged from him um he went to college and it was kind of too much freedom and he you know made some bad decisions like a lot of kids do and um and we put some rules on him that he wasn't willing to accept and and he kind of just went off on his own way for a little while Mm. um but then sort of towards the fall of of 2013 things were getting better we were he reached out um and we had an amazing conversation on the phone where he had kind of come come around and decided that you know he he wanted to fix things he wanted to go back to school he wanted to come home he was apologetic and and had really um seemed to remember the way we raised him you Mm. know um and the last thing he said was you know dad i'm sorry i want to come home i love you and the last thing i said to him was i love you too and i can't wait to see you and he was an honorable kid he had a job and he had agreed to work a couple more shifts before he came back to auburn um and so he was going to come home in, in two days, basically. Um, so that was a Monday. And then we were in the middle of a 21 days of prayer event with our church. You probably know, Church of the Highlands. Yeah. there. Yeah, Chris right. Hodges, Church of the Highlands, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and so um, we were doing this 21 days of prayer. And on Tuesday morning of August 20th, uh, 2013, the message was about, the kids and you're in praying for your kids Mm -hmm. and reconciling with your kids and protecting your kids and, you know, spiritual warfare for your kids. And, and we just had this amazing sense of hope because after all these months of crying out and and trying so hard to reconnect with Mitch, he had called. And then the next day the prayer was all about the kids. And then that night he died. Um, so we were just sort of, it felt like a dirty trick, right? Um, and the long and the short of it is that there was another boy that he was best friends with for a long time. Both of them died in the house that night. Um, both had stab wounds. Um, Mitch had multiple stab wounds. The other boy had one. Um, there were two, um, bloody knives in the house that the police found. Um, Mitch had a broken arm. He'd had a car wreck, um, a few weeks before and his right arm was broken. He was in a cast. He was right handed. Um, but he had multiple stab wounds and, um, what the police, the little small town police went in and spent an hour in the house. And then came out and told us that Mitch had killed this other boy and then killed himself. Um, mm. the, our problem with that was their logic was that he was closer to one of the knives. Um, the other knife was in another room in the house and, um, and basically Mitch had eight wounds in his body. Um, and it's hard mm. for me to understand as a physician, how you stab yourself eight times. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I that's, I wasn't expecting to go, go that far into the story, but the, mm, I'm, wow. I'm saying it basically because it, it was a story that didn't make sense to us. Right. And he had never been violent. He'd never had a fight with anybody in his whole life. The drug tests were all negative. He didn't have alcohol in his system. He wasn't mentally ill. He was a normal kid, and it just doesn't make sense. He was yeah. best friend to this child, this other boy, for years and years. And, and so the, the local police came in, looked around, made a decision, remove the bodies and clean the crime scene Before the no state bureau, no, no FBI, nobody, you know, with any higher degree of mm. efficiency at looking at crime scenes did any work in that house. And so um, basically it came down to a, a convenience story that they mm. gave us. And we just don't, we won't ever know what really right. happened. And, and what they say happened is so far from anything that we've ever experienced with him that we just didn't, It doesn't sit right. Um, But nevertheless, we can't know. So it felt like, you know, God gave us something horrible where he said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to take a child from you and Mm. you can't know what happened and you can't know why it happened. And there's no possibility that you ever will know why. Um, So it was um, just sort of came out of nowhere. That sort of stuff doesn't happen in our family. You know, we're not people who have dealt with violence or, you know, murders or suicides right. or any of those things. And, and so, um, it just sort of, I don't know if the word like devastation sounds so cliche, but it was, it was yeah. just like you probably experienced. So I mean, you weren't expecting that to happen in your life and, right. and there it was. And, and so it felt like a dirty trick on one hand because it felt like things were going to be okay. And then they weren't okay in the worst possible way that they couldn't be okay. Mm. Um, and we were just sort of leveled by it.
1: Yeah. How do you begin to? I mean, in the immediate aftermath of that, how do you begin to even process those emotions, the the grief that you were feeling, the shock, the confusion surrounding the whole situation? I mean, what did that look like for you and and your wife and your family? You know, it,
2: it was the first few days. I think you're just shocked, right? You you, yeah. you don't really know what to do. You're 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 crying and then you're weeping and then you and 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 you're um confused and and I went through a few days where I didn't really believe it you know that denial phase mm. that they talk about with people encountering their own death um, and and we the family of course huddled and everybody came and we did that whole thing that you do we had a funeral and all that stuff and it, it was probably i bet it was 2 weeks before it really felt like it was real mm. you know, it was just this horrible pain but you still expected you walked into his room and you expected him to be in there like it was some kind of trick or something yeah um and i'm not a like a mystic or anything like that but there were numerous times when i thought i saw him you know mm. walking by in the house and things like that happened and, and i know i understand the psychology of how that stuff plays out but um it it, it took a few weeks for it to really become real that my son was dead mm. and he was never coming home um and so as a family, I mean, I, I think there was a bit of a Holy Spirit um, gift there for Lisa and I because we we pretty quickly realized that we still had Kalen, who was, you know, a sophomore in high school at the time, and that we we needed to to sort of deal with it, but also let her figure out how to live her life again too, and go back to school and, mm-hmm. and do all those things. And and so it was a it was just a real complicated mess because life doesn't stop moving right. forward. Right. So we had, um, we had a business with with 10 employees and, and it wasn't very long before we started yeah. saying, gosh, you know, our, we got to go back to work at some point or our whole business is going to be gone. And people don't, people don't stop being in pain and they don't stop having brain tumors and they don't stop needing to go to the doctor. So if you're not there and for a pretty quick amount of time, they're going to go somewhere else. And, yeah. you know, so it, we had all these pressures, right. So, so there were, right. Real life things that that we had to deal with. So it, after a couple of weeks, it started feeling like we were going to have to find some way to cut through that darkness and and start at least pretending like we could make some of those things happen. Right. Um, and so I wish I had a, a, a handy a guidebook for people. Here's what you do. Yeah. But I really can't. Looking back on it, even it, I still don't even really know how we did a lot of the things that we did, you know, Mm -hmm. those first few days back at work and the first few days of Kalen going back to school. I don't know how she did that. Still made straight A's that year. Like somehow she just did it, you know? And, um, I think work for us and schoolwork for her gave us something to focus on. Mm. And then when you're, I I think I even wrote about this in the book, you know, I I went and did the thing that I knew how to do. And that gave me some time to not think about the reality that I'd lost my son. Um, and Lisa did the same thing and and then and you know we never missed a payroll for our employees or any of that stuff we we did it and then we would come home and just be right back in the thick of mm-hmm. in grief again you know it was like you, you could take the, coat, the the suit off and the reality was still there
1: yeah yeah it's really you know it's really interesting you mentioned that because um as as I experienced grief and the loss of my wife I was able to take quite a bit of time off you know, I had the ability to step away from pastoring the church for a little bit, step away from preaching. And so I, I was just kind of thrust into this deep pool of grief immediately with no, you know, letting up, no relief, no stepping up. But most people, that's not their experience. When they have some kind of a loss, tragedy happen in their life, most people are, their experience is similar to yours. You know, they their work maybe gives them some time, but maybe potentially not. Um, And so they're stepping into some higher pressure situations. I'm not sure I can think of a higher pressure situation than a brain surgeon. Um, And so, you know, I don't know if you can kind of shed some light on, I know you just said it was, it's hard to put your finger on what exactly got you through those, those seasons, but, and there's not really a manual for it, but. Is there any way to even encourage people who maybe find themselves in the midst of that and they're still going, but I got to pay bills, but I've got to go to work and I'm having trouble focusing and all I can think about, I just feel full up of, of grief, I'm distracted. How would you encourage somebody like that um, to continue to move forward after their tragedy?
2: Right. It, it became one of the things I prayed about, actually. Like, you know, I, I'm in a job where... I've got to apply an extreme amount of focus and attention to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I would say, God, give me, just give me the bandwidth to, and the ability to set aside my feelings right now and do this job I got to do that's in front of me. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminded me of we used to do a little bit of rock climbing. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but the thing about rock climbing is it requires all of your focus to figure out where you're going to put your hands and your feet for the next few minutes mm-hmm. or you're going to fall off the mountain and die. Right. So you can't think about work. You can't think about right. home. You can't think about something else. You've got to think about the rock that's in front of you. And that, that's sort of how it felt to me. Like, like I had this big thing mm. that was consuming me, but I needed to just think about work for a few minutes or an hour or two hours. Oh, and then yeah. I could let that come back in and somehow I was able to partition that. And, and so I guess I would say to people, God will give you that ability if you ask him to, because he knows that you've, he's not surprised by the tragedy Mm -hmm. you're going through and he knows what else you've got to deal with too. And so the grace will be there. And I guess the, the best sort of, promise that the future grace will be there as i think john MacArthur said or john piper said the best promise of future grace is all the past grace right Mm -hmm. so the fact that you got through yesterday you'll you'll get through today too and you'll get through tomorrow yeah and then at some point it'll just start feeling more manageable yeah but it won't feel manageable at first you just have to do it Mm, that's so good Um, Yeah, you know, one of our taglines for the podcast
1: is helping you live, learn and lead through pain. And there's a season of grief and pain and tragedy and trial that you just have to get up and live. You got to just get up out of bed. You know, I kind of call it make your bed, (laughs) just like one step at a time, just get up, make your bed and just kind of let the rest of the day take care of itself. Because there is a season of that where you're you're not thinking, all right, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? You know, you're not trying to go, okay, well, how do I turn this around and help somebody else in that moment? In The very aftermath, you're just going, how do I live through this? That's right. I'm curious too. We've had so many folks ask us, and I think you'd be the perfect person to speak to this. um, You know, before we kind of dive into a little bit of the things that God began to show you out of this, and especially in terms of you know this idea of hope, I think this is a big message that you're bringing forward and 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 yeah. how you had to wrestle with it through some of the doubt and stuff, but can you speak a little bit to um your relationship with Mitch and maybe some of the the wrestling that you guys had to do emotionally with it? you know did you wrestle with guilt um did you wrestle with because you know I've got some friends who have lost uh older kids as well, you know teenage kids to a variety of different things, and the things that that they most often ask me as I, they say, Davey, I feel guilty about my relationship. But how do I work through this? How do I wrestle through this? Because we all know that in, in pain and tragedy, you're going to tend to adopt guilt that's not supposed to be on your shoulders, and yet it's there. So how, did, how have you wrestled through that, and what would you say to somebody who maybe finds themselves in a similar situation or in a
2: situation where they're, they feel estranged from their you know, older children? Yeah, you know that is tough. I, our situation was that we've, we we knew that Mitch knew that we loved him and that we provided for him. We had mm. given him an opportunity after opportunity to be everything he could be and that we'd always called him to a high standard. And his issue was more one of um insecurity and anxiety made him feel comfortable um seeking ways to not feel how he felt inside mm. himself, right? Which speaks to a lot of us, I think. But he, right. it, what what drove the wedge originally with us was just me, sort of insisting that he see himself differently than he felt, mm. and he, he he couldn't see it. And so for a while he was, um, he didn't. He wanted to be somewhere where he didn't hear that message, and so my guilt mm. after we lost him was: should I have, should I have handled that differently? Should I have not have? tried to put my worldview on him so heavily. Should I have been more patient with him and his, um, you know, I I had a lot of that sort of thing, but what rescued me, I think, was the grace that God gave me on the day before he died when Mitch called and said, Dad, Mm. you were so right. You know, I mean, he, I got to hear him say that he, he saw finally what Lisa and I had been trying to do for him. And so, I guess all I can say is, especially since most people don't get that phone call, that they don't get that mm. reprieve. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that I did that I wish I had done differently, but you can't change them. And mm. so you, you have to say that you did your best in the time that you did it and you did it for the right reasons. And, and, you know, you can't, it sounds so trite to say you can't undo them and you can't get the moment back. So you, you have to know that you did it as best you could when you were doing it.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. And I think that was enough for me and having to hear Mitch, say getting to hear Mitch say that was a, a great blessing to me. Um, and I hope, I wish everybody got that, but I know that a lot of people don't. Wow. Man. Yeah. It's, it's um we, you know, we all
1: find ourselves in these places where we make decisions no matter how you know small or or grave that decision may be where we feel like we made the best decision we could with the information given to us right then and then we look back and we go man i would have done it so differently had i known everything that was going on and i think that's where we can find ourselves in those spaces of guilt and right. unnecessary guilt um you know and and it can turn into shame really easily as well but i love what you said right there where you have to go i did the best that i could with the information given and had the right heart and that's really the results of those kinds of things are not in our hands
2: that's right and, and even if you didn't even if you know there were places because there will be there are places that you could have done things differently mm. um at least you know it, it, that that your feelings about it now are retrospective and that when you were in them prospectively yeah. you, you were just doing your best mm.
1: I want to interrupt this amazing interview for just a few seconds to let you know about our pain-to-purpose video series. You may have heard us talk about it before, but if not, this is a video series we created to help you step-by-step as you navigate a tragedy trial or transition in your life. In the videos, I discuss practical ways to work through your pain, no matter the category it falls under, and how to find both meaning and purpose through it. We believe this video series can have a profound impact on you or a loved one. This can be a great resource if you lead a small group for your church or if you're looking for personal direction for your own life, or if you have a friend in mind you think could use some help navigating a valley. If you fall into any of these categories and are interested in learning more or purchasing today, head to MyPainToPurposePlan.com. That's MyPainToPurposePlan.com. Now back to our conversation. You know, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and tell me a little bit about um as you guys were processing through this and as you're working through all of this stuff, uh you know, it seems like there were some predominant themes that began to stick out to you, particularly um unique to what you do as a as a brain surgeon, you know, and the and your experience with that hope is one of those big uh themes that was that was really coming to the forefront as you as you were wrestling with this and you were trying to find hope yourself. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of those things that God began to show you as you guys were putting the pieces back together here?
2: Yeah, and if, and to do so, I think I have to start earlier in the story, you know. Yeah. I, um as a neurosurgeon, if one of the diseases that we deal with most commonly is a brain tumor, uh a cancer in the brain called glioblastoma. Um, We call it GBM for short. Um, And it's the most common brain tumor in adults. And it's the most kind of uniformly fatal cancer Mm. in humans. Like nobody survives it pretty much. Um, In fact, for the last 40 years or so, the 10 year survival rate is pretty much zero. Five years, about 10% or less. And so as I, as a Christian and as a scientist, as a, as a surgeon, as I, as I began my career grappling with this illness, I would, I would sort of look at a patient and I would look at their scan and I would just see it in my mind, what was going to happen to them. Like Mm. I would forecast to them and I would always say to myself, I've seen the interview. Like I, I know what's going to happen to Mm. this guy, right? Before I even meet you, if I'm looking at your scan, I'm seeing the fate, the look on your face when I tell you that you have brain cancer, Mm. And see what your wife's going to say and and I can hear you guys say well is it what's the prognosis doc and I'll say well we have to do a biopsy and then you know go through that whole thing and I know right. what the pathologist is going to say and I know what you're going to feel like six weeks later and I'm going to know when you get radiation and chemotherapy when your hair is going to fall out and I'm going to know when you're ready to go to hospice and all that stuff before I ever meet you and and so I had this issue of also, from neuroscience knowing and, it, and really from being a Christian knowing that people who have faith and hope and people who are willing to fight, they do better even if they don't mm. live longer. Their families stay together better. Their spirits are better. They take less medicine. They spend less time in the hospital. They, have, you know, they just have fewer complications and infections. It's absolutely proven mm. that if, if you fight harder and keep your spirit up, you have a better outcome even if you don't survive, You're, you're, you just, your quality of life is higher for longer. Wow! So I needed my patient to fight even if I didn't believe he could survive. And I, at the same time, I had this Bible full of stuff telling me to pray without ceasing and the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much and God will heal all our diseases and all that stuff. Yeah. And it was all true at the same time. Hmm. So I would say to my patient, you know I need you to pray, I need you to fight, but then in my heart at the same time, I would doubt because mm-hmm. I would say, I know what's gonna happen. So so I struggle with that, this notion of of something being true scientifically and true spiritually at the same time. But this the the medical fact seemed to be a hundred percent. Like mm-hmm. I'm asking my patient to pray for something that God always says no to. Mm-hmm. And that struggle I struggle with that. So um that's when I, I got to know Philip Yancey. I wrote him an email as a, as a Christian writer, you know, Philip. Yep. Um, um, and he, his books had meant a lot to me as a younger person. It kind of rescued me out of legalism and, mm-hmm. and some of the stuff that I grew up in. And my wife encouraged me to email Philip Yancey about my conundrum of how do I <laughs> tell a patient to pray when I don't believe it's going to matter, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was an academic exercise because I didn't expect a notable, well-known writer to write me back, but he did. And he said, Well, when I have a problem, I write about it. And I mm. was, thanks a lot, Philip. You know, I want you to tell me how, I want you to tell me what to do. <laughs> and you're telling me to write about it. So I started kind of journaling my thoughts about this and just um, grappling with the notion of, of trying to learn how to help people find hope, even though they're in a hopeless situation. Yeah. Right. And I started thinking I knew some things about that after going through all that. And that about the time I was ready to start trying to write that, Mitch died. Um, wow. And I realized pretty quickly that I didn't know anything about how to <laughs> help people handle grief and, and loss and, and hope because I lost all mine, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I felt um, at the same moment when we felt the most hopeless, and I understood what Isaiah meant when he talked about the you know the furnace of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, God said, I'll refine you in the furnace of suffering. Um, I understood what it felt like to be in that utter dark place where you couldn't even see light yeah at the same time i knew that the only the only hope i had is if the scriptures were true that i could get to see michigan someday yeah and so i started thinking about that and thinking about the notion that if it's if it's not true that that god is real then i'm really hopeless and i found that verse where paul said if there's no resurrection then we are among all men most to be pitied Mm. If you know if it's if it's just something we're hoping for and it's not true, then it's just terrible that we're living this life. We might as well be out there you right. know, living right. it all, right? And so I started noticing promises in Scripture that gave me hope, and I started realizing the ones that were that were coming true. And the mm. first one was. I remembered back to when I was in Iraq, the Psalm one forty four one that says, um, "Praise be to God who trains my hands for war mm. and trains my fingers for battle." And it dawned on me that I had been sent to war in a really unprepared way. I didn't know what I was getting into. Mm. I was ready. I never, I never went freaked out when the bombs started going off. Right. Yep. So I saw that God had brought me through that time, and mm. it was, seemed hopeless, but I made it through it. And then. It, the you know the other Psalm thirty four eighteen says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted or when someone's really hurting God moves in close and revives them the voice says, and so I started seeing these promises that were true, and thinking about the resurrection and that's really my only way to hope that I can see Mitch again and yeah. I decided that they all have to be true or none of them are. And so it came to me, if the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired and God-breathed, and it also says that it's impossible for God to tell a lie, Mm. then it has to be true that I'll get to see my son again, right? Mm. Then it also has to be true, as my friend Pastor John pointed out, that all things can work together for good for those that love the Lord. Mm. That was the hardest one to swallow when you're in the midst of losing your wife or losing your son, right? Right. And, and it's one of these horrible cliches that we Christians say to each other, at the worst possible moment, when when you don't want to hear that God can redeem that, you don't. You're just mad about it, yep. and somebody says, "Oh, it'll something. will good. Come something good will come out of it." You're not ready for that right then.
0: Yep. But
2: but for me, in trying to find the light again, I had to make a decision that all these promises are true, mm. and so therefore I could start counting on them, even when I couldn't feel it. Right. Yep. So Lisa and I had this like a discreet moment where we realized and we talked about it where I feel like there's utter darkness right now, but I'm going to believe that there's still light out there somewhere. Mm. And just, just the notion of choosing to believe that I'll feel better someday was enough to keep us moving through the days when we didn't. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense the way I'm saying it, but but it was just we made a decision that we're going to walk towards the light and that at some point God would honor his promise that he would redeem that pain in some way. Mm. And it started proving true. Mm. And then the thing that surprised me the most was that somebody came to me. It was actually a patient who had a glioblastoma. And he said, hey, my brother-in-law lost his son. Can you help him? Mm. And I was like, I can't help him. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm still trying to figure it out too. And he said, Well, you're six months further along than he is. Maybe you can just tell him to keep trying and he'll survive six months. That might be enough for him. <laughs> right. Yep. And so I just started noticing that God was like tapping me on the shoulder and saying, I'm trying to use you in this and I'm trying to honor my promises and you need to step up. And wow. so I started just Lisa and I both and our kids even just started being around, and all of a sudden, other people would show up who were having some kind of trouble, and we could say, well, I don't, I don't understand much about that, but I can tell you that six months ago, I, was, I couldn't get out of bed, and now I can. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to help. Mm-hmm. And so I started learning that I had thought that glioblastoma was the deadliest thing known to man, and mm-hmm. I figured out that what's really the deadliest thing is hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the deadliest disease because yeah. you you can survive once in a while. There's a, somebody who survives a glioblastoma mm. once every hundred years. Somebody seems to survive yeah. it, but nobody survives being hopeless for very long. Right, that's when you kill yourself. Right? right. And so I started thinking about this idea that I had about writing about faith and hope and doubt and and the trouble we have when the things we think we know turn out not to be true. And I started realizing that if I had never been to war and I'd never been through a divorce and I'd never lost a son, I would never have been able to tell other people mm. how to get through those times. And so that's really where it all came, how it all came together for me. Wow.
1: You know, it's a—it's an amazing concept just to think about the fact that hope and hope that this situation, this present situation is not going to be our pervasive situation. This present feeling is not going to be the pervasive feeling. It's not going to be the thing that we are continually and permanently feeling forever and ever, even though it feels like it when we're in the midst of that deep, dark season. What an incredible idea that hope is like, just just hope moves the needle. But I mean, you and I both know that it's not just hope in and of itself, it's hope in something, the right thing, the proper thing. Um, What exactly... I'm just gonna soft toss this to you. What exactly we are, are we having to put our hope into? Because it can't just be right. Like, well, I'm hopeful that I won't feel this way, but it's hope in something else, right? It's hope in what? What would you say? What did you guys find that was?
2: Well, for us, obviously, it's faith. I mean, it's yeah. just the Lord. Right. But, but I think the the interesting thing about God to me. And I don't know if I've, I don't, I'm sure I've never said this out loud. It just, it's, it's one of those ideas that's, it's congealing in my brain right now. One thing that God does is he ministers to people, even if they don't believe in him. Mm-hmm. He does that for all of us. Yeah. And on the neuroscience side, hope creates a change in your brain chemistry and it produces more just thinking hopeful thoughts. Right. We know from functional MRI studies now, just thinking hopeful thoughts creates increases in dopamine and serotonin in your brain and makes you feel better. Mm. Right. So that's, that's God created neurochemistry and neuroanatomy that helps people even if they don't believe him. Right. Right. So he's ministering to those folks (laughs) because that's how you're going to get up and not put a bullet in your head. Right. So then maybe the next day you bump into Davy or somebody who can help you and maybe you get further down the path and maybe you end up finding him. Right. So God, I think, is doing that for all of us, whether we believe in him or not, by the the mechanisms that he's created in our bodies and in our hearts. But when you tie it to something real, mm. when you tie it to knowing without any doubt anymore that there's something bigger and better and beyond this world, then it becomes almost a superpower. and You can you can you can go through anything and you can make it. Mm. And that's what I, I kind of wrote. um. In the book, I talked about the notion that hopelessness kills people, even if they survive their disease sometimes. Mm. And even if you're not, even if your physical body comes through it, like you, I've seen people who were wrecked just by the notion that they could get sick. Mm. And even if we fix their problem, they're so bitter and angry and they've blown up their marriage or they've, you know, they, they've just ruined their lives because they never found hope again. It was hope that could have turned that curve around for them. And I've seen other people like my character in the book, Joey, who was based on a real person who got really sick and found the Lord in the midst of it and ended up, he called it the best year ever. The year he died of his brain tumor was the best year of his life because he fixed his family and he reconnected with with his wow. some of his relatives. And he just he just turned his life around even while he was dying. And that's what hope can do for you. Hope tied to faith in something bigger, and something deeper, right? Mm-hmm. And I've seen mm-hmm. other people that they think they're okay and they think they're strong and then disease hits them and it takes them out for a while. And the thing that brings them back is finding reality in those promises. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it does move the needle, but it's not just a, it's not just a feeling. It's, it's really that there's something underneath it that God's trying to do in your life that's real. That's so
1: good. It's you know. It's I mean. Here we are. We're recording this around the Christmas season, and you think about the uh, the wise men, the astrologers, who were following after science. They were following. They were seers of the sky, and they were following after what you know they thought was going to be this king that had been prophesied in the zodiac or in the stars, or you know, and 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 there's God meeting them in the space that they understood to show them what the real truth was, the real King Jesus being born in a manger. And here in this situation, you're talking about neuropathways and the brain chemistry and brain science that says, you know, if we just, if, if we just hold on to, to hope, then it changes things inside of us and gives us just another moment to where God can show himself to us and show us what the real hope that, that we need to be put, we need to put our hope into. And that's the person of Jesus. That's right. Wow. That's amazing. Now, as you guys have been ministering to some of these families, you know, as you said, it was, I love, I love the, I love that uh, story you told somebody who came and told you, you know, um, uh, Hey, this person just lost their son. Can you help them? And you're like, I don't know what to, you know, how do I do this? But you're six months further down the road. As you're ministering to these families, you're finding this. What has that begun to do for you and for your wife in terms of some of these promises like Romans 8.28? How has that begun to heal your heart even in the process of ministering and healing others?
2: It's funny. I just talked about this on my podcast last week. Um, There's a quantum physics concept um, where they talk about electrons that can be in two places at the same time. Hmm. Uh, which is weird. It's hard to understand. And I don't understand it, but the the notion that a, a, an electron can spin clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time. Hmm. And to me, Romans 828 kind of does that to my brain. It, it's not good that hmm. I lost my son. It can't ever be good. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. But in 2014, early in that year, I was, I was in the habit of writing to my kids and my family every day some sort of encouraging thing because it moved the needle for me that day. Mm. Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, says, if you want to feel better, do better. There it is. Yeah. Mm. Feel something better than you're feeling. Do something better than you've been doing. And so I started writing, encouraging things to them to try to make myself feel better. And it worked. Hmm. So then somebody said, well, you ought to just use that and blog about it or create an email newsletter or something to help other people beyond your family with that. And that led to my, you know, writing and blogging and podcasting and all that stuff. Yeah. But out of that, two different people over the years since 2014 have emailed me and said, your podcast or your newsletter this week kept me from killing myself. Oh man. I was on the verge and something you said turned it around. So so the quantum physics idea is this. It's not good that I lost my son, mm-hmm. but it's good that those two people are alive. Mm-hmm. And those two people according to what they said wouldn't be alive right. if I hadn't written that and I wouldn't have written that if I hadn't lost my son.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's
2: a there's a good that's a a reality out of Romans 8:28 that's true that this thing has created some good and therefore with with enough time and distance from your tragedy, and I'll I'll encourage your listeners with this, and I'm sure you would agree, with enough space to gain some some retrospective perspective, you will see that all of a sudden you can't feel like it was a good thing that you lost, Mm -hmm. but you'll start to be able to see the good things that have arisen from it. And you'll start to feel like the loss has been redeemed in some way. Mm -hmm. I think it just dawned on me, that's why you called your podcast, Nothing Is Wasted. Mm -hmm. Like it would be a terrible and unacceptable thing if you lost your wife or I lost my son and nothing came of it and their life was just over. Yeah. But knowing that something good has arisen from it, redeems it in some way. Mm -hmm. To where Mitch is still helping people Even though he's been gone for all these years, your wife is still helping all these listeners, all these people that you're affecting and impacting with your ministry. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But just like that electron, it's a bad thing that can never be good. And it's a good thing that can never be bad at the same time. Mm. Wow. You know, and what's
1: interesting, too, is people, you know, they'll say it's like sometimes we encounter people that they're waiting for God to kind of bring that kind of impact to their, to their mind, to their sights, to be able to see, okay, what, okay, what's happening? How, how is this affecting other people? God, what what are you going to do to redeem this? Or how's this, you know, going to be turned around for good? But they're doing that with the posture of waiting, as opposed to doing it with the posture of, you know what, I'm just going to take a step. And like what you said, I'm going to just start putting on this mission or putting on hope or putting on, this um, faith that if I take a step forward toward the light, take a step forward toward helping people, um, opening myself up to just the one person that maybe I'm supposed to interact with today and help them and whatever their their situation is, that over time, God's going to reveal that to me. Over time, he's going to begin to um, open up
2: more and more opportunities. And, I think that's right. Yeah. It's right, but I don't think it comes across. I don't think it happens in real time that way right, in your brain. Right, right. I think what happens is you you just start taking those steps. You make your bed, like you said, yep. you go back to work, you start um living your life again. And at some point the Holy Spirit just just nudges you a little bit yeah. and says, you ought to just just that thought you just had write that down. That might help somebody. Mm. Or you might need to read that again in a few days. For me it came about where my kids would I would get up and I would write something I would forward some email of John Piper's devotional or Max Lucado's deal or or some verse of the day or something, and I would write a little note to my kids. And one of them, almost every day without fail, would say, gosh, that's exactly what I needed this morning. Hmm. That thing that you sent, Dad, made a difference for me today. Thank, you know, thanks. And I started just – it wasn't that I set out to, you know, okay, I'm going to get over losing my son by – helping other yeah. people, I'm so noble. You know, it, it, I don't <laughs> think it happens that way, right? You just start taking a step and over time you gain some perspective that maybe that step is is doing something bigger than just moving you forward one step. Mm. That's when you start feeling better, right? It's when you start saying, gosh, maybe my life, thing I was about to say, maybe my life has some meaning and value after all, because one of the things that that happens, I think, is you start to to view tragedy as a limiting factor Mm -hmm. in the rest of your own life, right? You say, well, gosh, I must be a bad father. What can I do now? I'm going to be broken. I'm never going to, you know, you start… Right. Catastrophizing all those outcomes. And I think that's a natural thing that happens. And that's why a lot of marriages break up after right. tragedy and, and a lot of things happen. You know, people go bankrupt and they drink too much and they find, try to find surrogates for the pain that they're feeling. Mm. And, and surrogates are for suckers, by the way. I've, I've mm. been talking about that. Like like doing something to make you not think about or feel what you're needing to feel after you have a major loss, yeah. folks, is not the way to feel better tomorrow. Mm. Because tomorrow you'll feel bad for the choice that you made. Yep. You'll still have your problem. Yep. And so don't gamble. Don't drink. Don't, you know, fool around with people. Don't try to find bodily things that make your body feel a certain way because mm-hmm. they won't help. Right. Exactly. So just won't. They'll create other problems for you, but they won't help. Um, a guy that I know said he tried to find pain he tried to relieve his pain with grape and grain and that didn't help Mm. (laughs) it made everything worse you know he was was drinking he was was gambling he was doing other stuff wine and spirits and and it just doesn't help Mm. and so what does help though as we've learned is taking a step and later realizing that that step helped another person wow and then you start saying gosh god's gonna redeem this maybe he's gonna I open some things up in my life in the future that look differently than I thought they were going to look. Mm -hmm. And it's going to help people in a way that I wasn't able to help them before.
1: So how has this changed then, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, you talked about this conundrum that you would have with patients where you'd be like, well, I see the writing on the wall. I see, I've seen the end of you. By the way, that's the name of the book. I've seen the end of you. It's re- it released on January 7th. Um, and, and so we talked about this at the beginning that, you know, you, you could see this whole thing play out with your patients. And yet at the same time, you knew the promises of God. Now, how do you communicate that to your patients? What does that look like in terms of trying to help them understand the idea of hope and, and hang on to um, hope in their situation?
2: So the, the first version of that was, was I would, before I really figured it out, the first version was I would tell people something that was true, but it wasn't the whole story. And, and mm-hmm. what was true is there's a lot of research going on and there's a lot of people working to solve this disease. And so I think there's a nerd in a lab out there somewhere right now that's running a test that's going to produce an answer. And one of these days they're going to come busting out of the lab with the cure for glioblastoma. And I want you to be alive and healthy enough to to get that drug when I have access to it, it's mm. gonna solve your problem. So I would I would go there, which is let's fight this thing because somebody someday is gonna have a cure for it and give it the give it your best shot. Right. So I started there, but I've evolved over time to something I think is better than that. And it's look, I need you to fight this thing because none of us gets to know the number of our days. Mm. We can Fight for and demand that all of them matter. Hmm. And so hope, pray, fight, don't give up. There might be a cure someday, but your life can be better than it has been, even if you don't beat this disease. Yeah. And I've seen that happen. And that's what I encourage people to do now.
1: Wow. Wow that 's awesome man this has been this has been an incredible conversation what a i I am so sorry for the loss that you 've experienced and you know uh, and it's it's multiple layers of of trial that you 've walked through I mean you listed out some of them earlier, going to war and then your divorce and then obviously what we 've talked about most here on this um, interview is the the loss of your son but i'm just so appreciative of the fact that it's allowed you now to be able to speak into from a Unique perspective from this perspective of science and how it marries with our faith. Um, uh, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. We say that science should make us go, "Oh, that's how God did it." There's more discovery that we have of of how things work in both our body and the universe, and you know, in all aspects and fields of science, we should go, "Oh, that's how God put all this together. That's amazing." Right. So they're not at odds with each other, and I love the fact that you're carrying that message that these two things are, they work in tandem because God's the mastermind behind all of this and, and He meets us in in each one of our situations. And so, uh, Dr. Warren, thank you so much for for sharing that with our audience. And um, I'm, I'd am i love to have them turned on to the other things that you're doing. Where can they follow the, you know, you said you have a podcast, you've got other stuff that you're doing as well. Um, let us know where we can follow you.
2: Great. And my website is wlewarrinmd.com. Um, and it's a long name, but (laughs) wmd.com. I think Dr. Lee Warren forged that same address
0: too.
2: Um, I do a weekly newsletter that I've been writing every week since the February after Mitch died. Mm -hmm. Um, and then a podcast, the Dr. Lee Warren podcast. Um, those are the three easiest ways and the book, obviously.
1: Yep. And again, the book is called I've Seen the End of You. And we'll put all of that stuff up on our show notes and our podcast page so people can access it pretty quickly. And then we're also going to start a a GoFundMe for making Dr. Lee Warren an Alabama fan rather than (laughs) – an Auburn fan. Get your faith up on that one, brother. <laughs> I've got hope. I've got hope. And right, the fact hope. that one That's day right. you will be converted right. to the real side. <laughs> Man, I really appreciate it. This has been great.
2: It has. And you know, you're know, you making a big difference, Davey. And I, I appreciate you leading the way and, and putting the message out there. Um, you know, I've said a lot. Um, doubt is normal and it's not to be avoided. Um, mm. Fear is the thing that hurts us the most. Um, And, you know, I think you're giving voice to a lot of our doubts and a lot of the things that we have reason for hope for. So thank you and I appreciate being on your show and and, uh, sharing this little bit of time with me. Uh, Well, thank you, man. You have certainly blessed us tremendously and uh,
1: look forward to having some future conversations with you as well and all the stuff that you're going to be doing. All right. God
2: bless.
0: Wow, what an incredible interview. That, that guy's was brilliant. powerful. He is. The
1: second I heard that we were having a neurosurgeon on the Nothing is a wasted podcast, I got really nervous. Yes. I was like, speaking of nerves, I was like, uh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if we can speak the same language.
0: But yet, he was so practical and so real and down yeah. to earth and one of my favorite things that he talked about was that the deadliest disease is not what he was talking about, you mm-hmm. know, with our bodies, but it's the deadliest physical. Disease is hopelessness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is so true. That is so true that when we find ourselves in situations where um, hope is gone, that's when we're, man, that's when we're going to find ourselves in, in space where we're not going to be able to move through. But the good thing is, is that in following Jesus, there is always hope. That's what the cross and the empty tomb tells us is that, mm-hmm. I mean, the cross, Brittany, is the worst tragedy of all all of history the worst tragedy the worst injustice that's ever done the perfect god man put on the cross for our sin should have never most bloody gruesome thing you could ever imagine and yet if god can take that and he can turn it around and not just not just like not just emerge from it right like not just like come up out of it victorious but also turn it around for good he can take all of our situations, which is why I th- the Bible says, and you know, is it First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, which one of those that says we don't grieve as those who have no hope?
0: And the hope we have is not something that you see, but it's something mm. it's in. You know, people. I don't know about you, but when I was walking through my suffering, people always said, "Oh, you have such strong faith." And I'm like, "No, it's not my faith. It's mm. who I have faith in." Because our faith struggles, my faith struggles, but who I have faith in does not. And our hope has to lie in who He is, not in our circumstances, not That's in how so we feel at the time, but in who the person of Jesus is as our hope and joy. And um, there are so many great takeaways that Dr. Lee had, but also some of my favorite ones were his practicality of Mm -hmm. saying, okay, this is what it looked like with grief of going Mm -hmm. into work and kind of having to pause it and then coming back into it. And so one of the things that I love about Nothing Is Wasted is that you have a ministry specifically to coach people through walking through pain with those practical steps of how to go from loss to perspective and to trial to triumph. And that is just one of my favorite things that you guys actually do that on a practical level.
1: Yeah. I mean, we found that so many people get stuck you know, and they get stuck Mm -hmm. at certain stages and they're stuck somewhere on the spectrum of like, they don't, they avoid the pain. They don't want to confront it. Well, that ends up booby trapping you later, right? A feeling buried, a feeling buried never dies. So it's going to come out even worse later. Or, or they get stuck in the sense that they're just kind of wallowing in it and they can't move through their valley. And God's goal for us is to move through the valley. So We've developed this process called the pain-to-purpose process. We've developed a course for it, and we offer coaching, personalized one-on-one coaching to help you in your specific trial, your specific specific valley. And I'm really excited, Brittany, for some plans that we have in the future for this. I can't talk about those plans, but this coaching process is going to be built out uh, even more to be able to serve and help more and more people because that's our heart. We want to help people yep. move through this and come out on the other side victorious.
0: Absolutely. We also want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing the music for today. Yeah.
1: And uh, next week, Brittany, we've got this incredible interview with Esther Fleece. And wow. That's
0: incredible. Isn't
1: she a powerhouse? Holy cow. I'm really excited about this interview, um, as I am with all of our interviews, but I'm excited the most always for the next one. Always. God always does. The next one's like, oh my gosh, it's even.
0: Oh, don't worry. I'm really excited. I took three (laughs) pages of notes when I heard it. It is amazing.
1: I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. So, before we hear Brittany's thoughts on it, before you uh, sign off, let's listen to this little clip from our interview with Esther Fleece.
0: Just a a few, I mean, a few years into that trauma, my biological mother ended up getting remarried. And um, so that was difficult in and of itself. But that dad, that stepdad one year later had an affair and left our family. So, and I was still in and out of the courts at this time. I mean, I was still grieving the loss of my biological father and his entire family and then I have to grieve another loss of losing this stepdad. Um, and it was at that time, I was probably about 13 years old that my mom, my biological mom just, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know and we never know the motives of somebody's heart but she just stopped being a mom.